welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Brabeck. And I'm Kemper Donovan. And this week we are doing a short story. It is Jane in Search of a Job. And Kemper, why don't you tell us a little bit about the publication history of it? Sure. Although I would like to submit a potential alternate title for this one, Kemper and Catherine in Search of a Plot. (laughs) (laughs) Fair warning to our listeners. Yes. So Jane in Search of a Job was first published in the Grand Magazine in August of 1924. So this is an early Christie short story. And then in the Listerdale Mystery Collection in June 1934 in the UK. And this is another one of those short stories that does not show up in the US until it's published in the Golden Ball and other stories in 1971. Yeah, nobody was really missing anything, just, you know. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, you never know what you're going to get in the Listerdale Mystery Collection. You never know what you're going to get. Well, it's why it makes it fun, right? It does, because there are some gems in there, right? Yeah, Yeah. definitely. This is perhaps not one of the gems, but I think it's got some interesting reference points, actually, so we'll get to that in a bit. Let's talk about our victim, Catherine. Well, that would be a spoiler. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's not talk about our victim, Catherine. Let's talk about our suspect, Catherine. Oh, that that would also be a spoiler. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I suppose in some way we could say that our titular character is both the victim and the suspect. As often happens when we bemoan the lack of a plot in a Christie short story, this is not a miniature mystery puzzle here. We have nary a detective nor a clue but a thriller adventure so let's get to it and talk about the world as it appears to be in this thrilling adventure so jane cleveland is a 20-something unemployed young woman living in london and spending a lot of time contemplating what possible job she could do to make any kind of money because she's so broke that she's like valuing her poached egg on toast Just in case she can't have it the next day. We've all been there, right? Yeah, she says that she's thinking about being a maid, and there are are a lot of notices for parlor maids. And Christy herself, when she was younger, at one point seriously considered becoming a parlor maid. Yeah, well, Jane, um, she doesn't exactly have a padded resume. Um, I think that this is actually we can well we can talk about this in the adaptation because it's it's made a bigger point of is that you know she's kind of like middle class and she was not raised to have a job right but now she actually needs to earn her bread and she doesn't really have any skills so no, to speak she she is very pretty and she does speak perfect French it is funny and I underlined it because it's such an odd phrase she says I could go somewhere I dare say as a willing young girl. <laughs> That phrase being capitalized. But they don't pay willing young girls anything to speak of. To my 21st century mind, willing young girl does not sound like anything good. No, it sounds like you're going to be like um, in like some back alley, like doing unspeakable things. (laughs) I think it's a reference to being sort of a maid of uh, all work. Right. Like just a a girl who who will be employed in a house and do pretty much whatever is required of her, that the housework doesn't have to be specified. That's, I believe, what's going on there. But even in the adaptation, actually, they do make a joke of it because her landlady says, well, what happened to that willing young girl position that you applied for? And she says, oh, it turned out to be a man who wanted to hire, not a woman. And the landlady is like, Ugh. so uh, 
<laughs> Clearly in 1982, <laughs> they had the same kind of gutter mind that I did as a reader in 2018. I know. I was just like, oh, no, Jane Cleveland. <laughs> like, please don't. Please don't become a but, willing young girl. But, I mean, I will say this. What Jane Cleveland does is not much better. What did she do, Kepper? Well, what Jane does is to come across a strange listing in a newspaper. She, she looks at the uh, agony column, right? The agony and personals column. Yeah. So we're totally in Parker Pine land here. Yes, uh, so gird yourself. This ad seems to be for some kind of audition. And it's very, very specific in what it is looking for. Quote, if a young lady of 25 to 30 years of age, eyes dark blue, very fair hair, black lashes and brows, straight nose, slim figure, height 5 feet 7 inches, good mimic and able to speak French, will call at 7 Endersley Street between 5 and 6 p.m., she will hear of something to her advantage. End quote. Hmm, that's not shady at all. Oh, gosh. It's <laughs> just like, no. It's like the plot of Taken. Oh, God. Well, you know what it actually really is like the plot of, and this is what I was talking about when I mentioned some reference points in the story. And it, this is charming, but you could use this as evidence for the poor quality of this story. This is a really obvious send-up slash pastiche of a Sherlock Holmes story, The Red-Headed League, which... Um, uh. Yeah, Conan Doyle it was actually one of Conan Doyle's favorite stories, and it is a delightful story. And it starts very much the same way, where this man who has a very curious, bright, vibrant shade of red hair answers an advertisement about people with red hair coming to be offered a job. And he's offered this curious job, and there ends up being a nefarious reason why, and he's sort of hoodwinked. And uh, I don't want to spoil that story for anyone who hasn't read it, but Christy from Mysterious Affair at Styles on had no problem referencing Holmes. She just did it usually a little bit more delicately and deftly than I think she's doing it here. This is fairly lifted from <laughs> the right. red-headed league. And there's also another Holmes story called The Adventure of the Copper Beaches, which involves a woman being hired for a position based on her appearance and also being the unwitting kind of pawn of various nefarious schemes. So hard not to think that Christie had uh, certainly the Redheaded League, if not this other story in mind when she was writing this. And it's a lot of fun, but I don't think she was necessarily adding anything to those ideas that Conan Doyle no, first had. Not so much. But in any case, what happens when she answers this ad, Catherine? Well, she shows up at this address, as do dozens of other young women who all look, you know, quite similar. Although Jane rather mean girlishly notes that some of them are like, you know, too fat or their hair is dyed. <laughs> she's like, I'll bet that one doesn't speak French all that well. Yeah, no, she's basically <laughs> like she you basically get her being like, well, ha, I have a better chance than this because like that one. Her hair color isn't real. Um, her eyes aren't blue enough. <laughs> so she's not exactly lovely in this. But she does wow Colonel Crannon, who's a quote-unquote foreign-looking gentleman. And he basically makes a mark on her calling card and sends her to a second interview at Harridge's Hotel, which, I mean, if you want to know the quality of this story, it's a posh Mayfair hotel, which appears to be a direct stand-in for Claridge's. Wouldn't you pick something that didn't exactly rhyme? Yeah. She basically went like, oh, Claridge's, Schmarriage's, Harridge's, whatever. Right. It's um just... 
sums up a lot of things, I think. But at Carriage's Hotel, she's interviewed by Count Streptich, who is a gaunt, older foreign gentleman. And he's not to be confused with Count Stilptich, who we encountered in, oh yes, The Secret of Chimneys. (laughs) I can just feel the authenticity of this Eastern European character here shining through. Yeah, and on top of it, he then brings in Princess Paparensky, just in case, just in case it wasn't clear where this was going. Um, Princess Paparensky, who is a squat elderly lady who also basically just inspects Jane. They talk about her as though she's not in the room, and it's all very, very uncomfortable. It's basically a physical inspection. Right. So having passed muster, Jane is then brought into another room to meet the oh, grand. Oh, she, she passed. No, she passes a catechism. That's my favorite thing is that that line is used three times in the story. (laughs) Just, like, so odd. So she's brought into another room to meet the Grand Duchess Pauline of Ostrava, who it turns out is in her late 20s, blonde, with dark blue eyes. Hmm. Pauline Mm. is delighted to meet Jane and decides that she's hired and will be paid 3,000 pounds. She bargains against herself because she doesn't even really care about money. It was going to be for 2,000 pounds, but Jane gets herself an extra 1,000 pounds when it's put in front of her nose. What is she getting these 3,000 pounds for, you ask? Well, Pauline insists on telling Jane privately. Because you see... It turns out that due to what else? The communists. Ah, those darn um, communists. I know. She's uh, the last of her family. So, I mean, I guess, I think a little bit she's supposed to be Anastasia. Once upon a December. Is that yeah. sort of where this is going? Yeah, she's she's a bit of a, a Romanoff. Like a Romanoff. Figures dancing gracefully. Across my memory. Yeah. yeah, and so she's the last of her family, and she's under this constant threat of assassination. And basically, she needs to survive her foreign trip for the next two weeks before she can make it safely home, where she'll marry. And ideally, she wants two male heirs because in her country, women can't sit on the throne. And in the interim, she needs a decoy to swap out if there are any threats made against her and or discovered while she's traveling. So Jane, ideally, will be her stand-in or body double. So in other words, if somebody wants to shoot her, they'll actually be shooting Jane. Yeah, as they meant to, like, throw a bomb or or just okay. kidnap her, which they say is, is what's more likely to happen. And they ask Jane, like, are you a courageous person? And I do like that she's like, well, I don't like to be hurt. <laughs> <laughs> And then they're like, no danger, you know, are you afraid of danger? She's like, oh, well, I'm a pert young heroine in an Agatha Christie short story. So, of course, I turn my adorable nose up in the face of danger. She's just on for the, you know, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. Yes, she is. But you know what? At least she has a normal name. Her name is not Tuppence. Her name is not Frankie. Her name is Jane. It's true. Although, you know, one of a long line of Agatha Christie Janes. (laughs) True. So um, the first event is a bazaar at Orion House outside of London, and this is a charity event wherein the invited wealthy guests will each donate a pearl from their own necklaces. What a lovely idea. And Pauline is to wear an elegant white gown with a bold black print and a white hat. And Jane, who was checked into another hotel, the Blitz, (laughs) 
as opposed to the Ritz, I suppose. <laughs> Oof. She is posing as a young American journalist, Miss Montresor. Hmm. Oh my gosh. Made me think of Helen Montresor in One Two Buckle My Shoe, and I know Catherine as well. Definitely so. Well, I guess, you know, French for my treasure, right? So um, mm. it's, it's a, as good a false name as any, I suppose. So posing as Miss Montresor, Jane will be wearing a flaming red dress to hide any similarity between her and the Grand Duchess if they need to switch clothes. She, at that point, uh, unless she needs to be her stand-in, doesn't want to look anything like her. Right. Um, and so on the day of the event, they are, in fact, warned by the Travian spies slash security services that there has been a kidnapping threat against the Grand Duchess. That's Ostravian, by the way. How dare you? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Fake Russia. <laughs> so uh, she gives her speech at this bazaar slash banquet slash whatever it's supposed to be. And she shakes hands, etc. But late in the event, Jane and Pauline switch clothes and hats. The only difference here is that Jane is an inch shorter than Pauline. So to wear her same dress, the black and white one, she has to wear high heels to be able to wear the dress. That's the biggest difference between the two of them. Otherwise, they're both blonde and blue-eyed. and They have the exact same coloring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And same size. Except for that inch of height. Exactly. So Jane, dressed as Pauline, then leaves the event with Princess Poporinsky. But it turns out their driver is a kidnapper and in on Mm -hmm. the kidnapping of poor Pauline. And he drives them to an isolated country house where they're locked inside. And Jane is trying to keep up the pretense that she's still Pauline because she wants to let Pauline escape and do what she has been hired to do. And they're given soup and dry bread which Jane eats right away, but the soup is drugged and Jane falls asleep. And when she wakes up hours later, she's wearing that red dress that she took off and gave to Pauline. And then on the steps of the house, there's a late edition of the paper, which reports that the bazaar they had all been attending was robbed and all those pearls that had been donated by the guests were stolen by an American in a red dress. Uh Uh-oh. Jane is in mm-hmm. trouble. I'd say. And that seems to be the way the world is, but this is a happy-go-lucky Christie thriller, so our heroine can't get hauled off to the clink, can she, Catherine? Well, I mean, I guess there's the world as it actually is, which in this case involves apparently the fact that she was stripped naked when she was unconscious, and her clothes are changed, which, <laughs> you know, kind of glossed over in this yeah. story. Not so great. Not so great. Not so great, but um, conveniently for our Jane, outside of this isolated house is a young man who, oh, guess what? He was just knocked unconscious after following the car that kidnapped Jane. And so he kind of comes to (laughs) on the steps outside of this house and he confirms all of Jane's story. Basically, she's not going insane. She hasn't imagined it. He also notes that he followed her because he noticed he saw the switcheroo because he's a leg angle footman and he noticed uh, their differing heel height. So that was why he followed the car out of the bazaar, because he noticed that the heel heights at that point were different. And he thought that was curious. Right. Right. So he was basically just looking at ladies ankles during this bazaar and just appreciated the fact that the shoes on ostensibly Pauline had changed. Right. And then he just went in pursuit of the car because he thought that was curious. 
Sure. <laughs> well, no, and also because he's in love with Jane. Right, well. Her, her feet. Her, her feet. <laughs> so Jane proceeds to tell him how she got dragged into this whole mess to begin with and recounts what we already know. And even more conveniently, this entire conversation has been eavesdropped on by Detective Inspector Farrell, who is investigating the case, and now knows Jane is innocent by what he's heard. Uh, Okay. Because he's, like, lurking by the side of the house near this unconscious dude and this drugged girl. <laughs> Just to completely spell it out, Pauline and the Princess Poporinsky and the colonel and everyone, they were all just a band of robbers, and they were using Jane as their patsy. That's right. why they took out an, an, an advertisement for someone who looked like Pauline, so that they could pull off this switcheroo and then pin the robbery on that poor innocent person. Yeah, except I mean, they kind of forgot the minor fact that they had a hundred or two hundred blonde young women of London coming in for auditions with these people. I know. <laughs> but you mean the, the publicity surrounding that? <laughs> right. To be fair, that's a weakness of the Redheaded League as well. But, I mean, you could argue that there is a glancing reference to girl bandits being about town right, in general. And that, yeah. that turns out to be exactly the group that she gets herself mixed up with. But it's not really a clue because this isn't really a, a puzzle in any way. No, and on top of it, this recently unconscious young man, it turns out he is a struggling artist, but he actually comes from a very successful, wealthy family. You've been much occupied with business, I'm sure. I'm not pursuing business just now. Grandfather agreed I should uh, concentrate on my music for a while. Uh, boot manufacturers? That's why he is so obsessed with women's shoes. <laughs> Sure, that's the reason. He's realized, though, now that he's actually a really garbage painter, so he's actually going to give up being a struggling artist and go do his um, filial duty as uh, taking up the family business. You aren't serious about music. My compositions are like your paintings, mediocre copies of another man's genius. Then why don't you go to Grandfather in London and make yourself useful? I should. And so, you know, he's actually going to be quite successful. And also he is um, now obsessed with and in love with Jane. So I guess she's not going to have to worry about money after all, because some stranger who she's just met unconscious, who's followed her because he was staring at her feet. I guess she's just going to marry him. Yeah. So problem solved. Not only does she not get this <laughs> jewel robbery pinned on her, but she gets a hubby out of it. The end. The end. That's what we got. <laughs> That's all we got here. We talk about all of the Christie tropes in her novels when it comes to the cluing and various iterations of whodunit. But we do also have tropes for Christie thrillers, and I think you can see a lot of them here. Dubious royalty. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Pert young heroines who are plucky, yet maybe not monetarily doing all of that well. And just this sunny, optimistic spirit infusing the whole thing and making it that much more unbelievable, ultimately. But having a certain amount of charm, I suppose. I suppose. I mean, I found the young man who followed her to be extra creepy. 
this is this is a particularly bad example of a character coming in just at the very last minute and not only saving the day but saving the character like saying oh don't worry i'll make sure that you don't have this robbery pinned on you and i'm also going to marry you so you don't have any more money troubles i mean we can we can talk (laughs) briefly and then wait and then also like i let me just reiterate the detective chief inspector whatever rises up out of a bush from behind them (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, yeah. people overhearing other people conveniently is another sort of element of these of these thrillers oh yeah what's the tommy and tuppence where they're having their entire conversation in the diner and then it turns out that their scotland yard contact is literally sitting behind them right there is an adaptation of this story believe it or not and it is part of the Agatha Christie Hour, so it aired in November of 1982. This was that collection. It's kind of an odd assortment of different stories. This is actually a second-to-last one to air, the last one being The Manhood of Edward Robinson, which we already discussed. Mm. Yeah. The adaptation makes one significant improvement, which is to infuse the entire story with this male love interest and introduce him from the very beginning. So rather than being this random person who's looking at Jane's feet, he is her rather dishy sort of roommate. Jane lives in this boarding house and he's this young man who's about to go off to become a policeman. He's going to police school and he obviously has a thing for her. It's very obvious and sort of charming from the get-go. And when she gets embroiled in this scheme, he doesn't trust it at all. So he's very much motivated to follow her to the bazaar and because he's about to be a police officer, to even go in pursuit of the car after this kidnapping happens, etc., etc., it all kind of plays out much more convincingly and satisfyingly, including at the very end when it's clear that they are going to end up together and they ride off. If not into the sunset, they do literally ride off on his motorbike. That part was played by one of those great British character actors, Andrew Bicknell, who we will see in The Moving Finger. He was in the, also in a much more major role in the Joan Hickson Moving Finger. I actually recognized him from that. I was like, I think that guy was in a, a Miss Marple. And he still works today. I mean, just one of those people who's had a great career, even though he's not an A-list celebrity, so to speak. But yeah, I thought the adaptation improved on a pretty bad story and was perfectly enjoyable. I agree. It made more sense, at least, than the story, which makes virtually no sense. We got to see a car get turned on with a hand crank. Always a delight. We got lions, the the, the lion shop name checked at one point, which made me think of Tommy and Tuppence and that exact story. That was the Sunningdale mystery when they were were sitting in the, the tea shop for the entire story. And oddly... In the scene when they're kidnapped and they go into that secret hideaway place, so it's Jane with the ostensible princess, Poporinsky, and she's kind of passing out and she thinks that the princess is crying and she says, oh, you know, don't cry, we'll be okay. And she passes out and then the camera pans to the princess and it turns out that she's laughing. I remember watching that when I was really little. Like, I must have watched a random airing of this Agatha Christie Hour adaptation, probably on Masterpiece Mystery at some point in the late 80s, late 80s, early 90s, because I definitely remember that because it's a little creepy and I think it scared me. I was young enough to find it slightly scary. So I had a sense memory when I watched it. I did not. I 100% (laughs) had not seen this before. (laughs) Well, that is 
Jane in Search of a Job. Not our favorite short story from the Listerdale Mystery Collection, but they can't all be winners. Join us next week for another short story. We will be covering an Hercule Poirot short story, in fact. The first ever published short story, The Affair at the Victory Ball. That would be exciting, and we will get an adaptation there, too, which we always love. We will, of course, get our uh, David Suchet adaptation. Very much looking forward to covering that. And then the week after that, we will be doing Evil Under the Sun, our next Poirot novel. In the meantime, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame. You can find Catherine at Brobcat. We are on Instagram at allaboutagatha and our Facebook page is allaboutagatha. And we would love it if you took a moment to rate and review us and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.